Whatever, everybody comes into stories in their own time, in their own place, with their own need. Mm -hmm. I don't know who's listening to this, what you are trying to gain or what you need, you what you have planned in your heart or what you want to do, let's say for native students on your campus. Because I don't know, I don't know what it is. Everyone's different and the context is different. But when you read this book, I hope that there's something that resonates with you that you can see uh, the next maybe pathway mm -hmm. from reading it. And it's gonna be different for everybody. Welcome to Student Affairs Now, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I'm your host, Rochelle Pope. Today we're discussing how indigenous students navigate, negotiate, and even thrive in higher education with Dr. Amanda Tashini. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays, and you can find us at studentaffairsnow.com, on YouTube, or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Stylus Publishing. Visit styluspub.com and use the promo code SA now for 30% off and free shipping. This episode is also sponsored by Leadershape. Go to leadershape.org to learn how they can work with you to create a just, caring, and thriving world. And stay tuned to the end of the podcast for more information about each sponsor. As I mentioned, I'm Rochelle Pope. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm broadcasting from Williamsville, New York, near the campus of the University at Buffalo, where I serve as the Senior Associate Dean of Faculty and Student Affairs and the Unit Diversity Officer for the Graduate School of Education. I'm also a professor in the Higher Education and Student Affairs programs. The University at Buffalo is situated on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Haudenosaunee people. I'm joined today with um, by Amanda Tashini, the author of Native Presence and Sovereignty on Campus, Sustaining Indigenous Weapons to Defeat Systemic Monsters. Amanda Tashini is brilliant and uncompromising in her critical examination of what causes harm and the systemic barriers that make it difficult to create meaningful change in higher education. And I hope that this episode will highlight the struggles and the strengths of Native students and offer a path forward for colleges and universities to connect with these students in meaningful and Indigenous-centric ways. I am so excited and quite honestly honored to have this important conversation and to share this space with Dr. Shahini. Yahate and um, Ahihe, um, hello and welcome for joining me today for this episode of Student Affairs Now. And welcome to the podcast. Can you begin by telling us a little bit about you, your current role on your campus and your pathways in higher education? Absolutely. And first, can I acknowledge your beautiful introduction, uh, particularly about how you are asserting Dineth language by saying yat and hihat. This not often poorly. <laughs> no, you you tried. That is just so like beautiful, and that means you went at you listened to it. You tried to find it. You know you did that, and that is just so meaningful to to me. And I just want to say thank you for doing that. Yat ash a Amanda Tachini in the Shia, Nanished as a Tachini in the Shlank, as a Lana Bashish Chain, Tabaha Dashache Ado, and she here at Dashanale, look Aunt Hena Shah, 
Koteko I introduce myself to you in the way I've always been raised to do so in my Navajo language, which actually really connects with the book as well. It, it identifies my four clans and we're a matrilineal society, which I feel is really beautiful given we're in a mm -hmm. heteropatriarchy nation state. There's still powerful matriarchs uh, uh, in my culture and in many other groups of people that thrive and, and honor and respect uh, uh, matriarchs in our family. So I come from that community. And I also, in my introduction, I say where I'm from. I'm from a small rural reservation community called Ganado, but in Navajo it's Lokantia, which means the patch of wide reeds. Mm -hmm. I really feel proud of where I come from. And often when I talk about it, I it, it just makes me feel good to know, um, to be from my community of Ganado. And then the last thing we say in Navajo is actually we identify our positionality as a woman. So nowadays we're saying she, her, hers. I love that we're identifying that. And I like to, um, but in our Navajo language, we already do that. Mm -hmm. We, I say, um, which means that's how I identify myself as a Navajo woman. And so we say that in our introductions. And so I'm here and I'm just really grateful to be a part of this. I'm a fan of student affairs now, and you all are doing phenomenal work, Dr. Pope and all of you alongside you in this work. So I just, and just abundantly grateful and full of joy this morning to be alongside you today. I'm channeling in from the land of the Akama Optum and Peeposh people in Phoenix, Arizona, which we've been receiving beautiful rain showers the last few days, which has just made drinking coffee really nice and just taking walks and with the dampness with my dog in the morning, really pleasurable. I'm faculty at Arizona State University in our higher education program there. And I'm just, I just, I'm just thankful for this conversation. So to talk about this beautiful book that I hope that you pick up, many of you pick up, if you've already picked it up and read it, thank you if you shared it. Yeah, in the <laughs> I love that. If you have it in your library or um, I, I thank you so much. It's just feeling so great to see the, the way students are picking it up. High school students are picking up. People are using it in their grad to undergrad in Native communities and, and, and others. And I just, gosh, that's the reason why I wrote it. So thank you for allowing me to talk about that today. Well, we're thrilled. There is so much that we need to do to um, improve our campuses for so many students, for so many faculty and staff, for all of us, so that people can go out and do the kind of work they need to be doing. Um, and creating the kind of society that we'd like to create. And so, um, so thank you, you know, really thank you for, for this important work. So let's, let's start at the beginning. I love to get to these origin stories. How did this book come to be? There's a lot of books that you can write as a faculty member. There's a lot of research that you can do, but how did this book come into existence? Oh, I love how you even framed it as an origin story, as you know. Um, you know, I, I think that there's many origin stories to this book. In many ways, I feel like maybe quite possibly I was born to do this. Hmm. Like maybe it was already planted in me through prayers from my generations back that that I would do this work. I mean, I like to think that way in all of what I do, but also in my future, my children's lives. Like I like mm -hmm. to think that they already have something destined for for them because if you really see my trajectory, my through line of my life, it's just feels like it's just has unfolded to produce a book such as this by growing up in a on, on, on in my home community where a lot of what the students and I share struggles are what I experience. 
Um, also, growing up in a home where my mom was a teacher on the in on the reservations in reservation school setting, so I grew up in her classrooms, helping her clean up, staying after for her parent teacher conference events when I was a little girl, you know, and then also seeing my grandmother help out with the school. So I grew up just around and seeing the emphasis of education as critically mm -hmm. important for us. Then fast forward, I, my bachelor's actually is in education and I went back home and I taught in my home community. And wow. then I then fast forward, I ended up teaching in Tucson, Arizona at a charter school for, for predominantly Tawana Autumn and Pascoyaki students in that region. That's where their homelands are. And University of Arizona was literally in their backyard of that school. Yeah. And I would take my students to campus and, and they would feel like many of them had never been to campus, even though it was walking distance right there. And so then I was, you know, introduced to the feel of higher ed in that time frame. Didn't even know that there was such a thing. I knew there was education and teacher ed and superintendents and all of that, because that's my life, but I didn't know higher ed. Mm -hmm. And so then started taking classes, um, got a degree in it. I was an administrator in higher education. I've served as the director of the Native Center at the U of A. And then from there, I started realizing how many of my colleagues and peers did not know about how to support Native students. It was so like screaming at me. Mm -hmm. And I and, and how much evidence-based evidence research was just critical in, in, in advocating, legitimizing your space and your resources for, for particular students, predominantly those who have been marginalized since mm -hmm. gen for generations. And that's when I see, I recognize like we need, we meaning me need to do research and have evidence-based research for folks to really advocate for native students. And so this book was actually my dissertation research and uh, was my first time really engaging in deep, in in depth about this um, and, and understanding 10 native students first year in college. Mm -hmm. And I nourished it. And when I went do when I was doing my dissertation, I was writing already, already knew I was gonna put it into a book. Nice. I just I was already writing my dissertation, like this is gonna be a book. I don't know where that came from, honestly. That's why I feel like it was probably prayed for before. Mm -hmm. Like I already knew I was gonna write it. So I was even structuring my dissertation like with the idea it's gonna one day become a book. And so, um, so yeah, there's many origin stories as to how that this book evolved. And I just, if I, we could sit for hours and I could talk you more and you'd probably get bored. And I would no way, no way. <laughs> and I would be in tears because there was so much moments of that have helped me to get to, get to where you all get to turn the pages on. Um, yeah. Well, well, thank you. You know, I think about that and I think that, um, I, I really love that image of that this has always been there for you, mm -hmm. that somehow this was, you were always going to write this book. And I'll tell you, it's so important because we've needed it for a long time. You know, mm -hmm. racially marginalized students on our campus are students who are culturally ma ma marginalized um, um, and, and marginalized in all sorts of ways. We still aren't serving their needs and that we we need to, and we need to figure out how to and how to do it better and well, um, because their lives depend on it. It's not just because we're trying to be better at the work that we're doing, because their lives and livelihood and and um, spirit and self depend on it. 
Um, so how about for those who haven't read the book yet? Because by the way, um, listeners, if you haven't read that book, you need to run out and get it. You need to get, there and get it. So for, for those who haven't read the book yet or haven't had the opportunity to work with Indigenous college students, what's most important for them to understand about how higher education is harmful to Indigenous students? Yeah, well, the book, if those of you who haven't read it yet, it follows the lives of 10 Navajo students during, um, I interviewed them during their first year in college. Mm -hmm. But the book is divided into two big sections. And the first section is actually their senior year in high school, because when I was talking with them, so much of their experience was connected to their prior context and their their higher education, uh, their high school experience. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, half of the book is their senior year and kind of gets to that college access conversations that we have, meaning, you know, when I was working at student affairs, um, there was such a push to move toward everything being online at that time, meaning like even your application should be all online. And I remember I used to advocate like, well, there's so many communities that actually don't have the tool, the the broadband, the infrastructure to go online. They're still doing paper you know, and pen applications. And I would get frustrated because I felt like many of my colleagues, they're like, really? Is, didn't believe me. Right, <laughs> right. Right. And so this book explains, like goes in depth about the home conditions of many of these students. And, um, and so I, so let me, I'm getting ahead of myself. So I share the, the first year, then the first year experience during the second part of the book. Mm -hmm. and the book is framed around monsters and there's four monsters that I'm identifying in each section mm -hmm. and the idea of monsters actually is connected to our oral stories of Diné peoples like in our we in our we are right now in my belief system that we are in the fifth world that this is called the glittering world that we have evolved glittering. the glittering uh -huh. the glittering world and that we have evolved in different worlds prior to now we're at the fifth, we have emerged. So that's why when you hear that we're connected to the land, we're literally emerged from the land. Mm. And so in these prior worlds there, and, and there was monsters that were killing our people. And, and there's the story of these two twin warriors who defeated some monsters and saved our people today. Mm -hmm. And this story is told, you know, in many places growing up uh, as a Navajo, you hear this, mm -hmm. especially during after the first snow. I can talk about it now because we just had our first snow in, in the wintertime. So there's protocol of when to share and so forth. And so one of the students in the interview, her name's Cecilia, it's a pseudonym. She actually told me that she conceptualized that all native students who go to college are like warriors, just mm -hmm. like the twin warriors. And that there are monsters that are threatening their ability to keep moving forward. And that we then, she said, and so we, she used the term we, meaning her and her alongside her peers, native students, like we are, are, are fighting and we are, we are the warriors with this idea of getting a degree as helping our community. Mm -hmm. Same way with twin warriors to defeat the monsters is like, we're, we're saving our Navajo people. Education then is seen as a value of not just an economic benefit that we often frame in higher education. You know, we're really good mm -hmm. about doing that. But students and other researchers like Jameson Lopez and others are saying like, 
that's important. But the other story is this idea of reciprocity and giving back and really building a native nation, building up sovereignty. And so, so the book then frames the monsters. So then I was wondering, what are the monsters? Mm -hmm. What are these contemporary monsters? This is the book I talk about these contemporary monsters. But then I didn't want to be have a book of just deficit and just right. like hardship and struggle that we're so good about doing as researchers. We're we're we've been professionalized to problematize to critique our work. Mm -hmm. But what then there's implications for that. You know, when we do, when we continue to do that, what kind of world are we creating for ourselves and what kind of world and what, how are we um, limiting joy and love and, and harmony that's mm -hmm. occurring in our lives. And so, you know, I wanted to then identify the indigenous weapons. I use the language of indigenous weapons of what did the students use? What was the tools that they used to defeat the monsters or to navigate through the monsters? So the book is around those ideas of monsters, they're warriors, they're monster slayers, they're using weapons um, during college because they're present. Mm -hmm. You know, that is so powerful. And it, and it really, when I started to read the book, well, when I was looking at just the title and just before I started the book, I said monsters. And I said, um, um, my, I was, why otherize in a sense, these, um, 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 system systems and the, the, um, the barriers, these systemic barriers. And then I started to read and I started to learn, you know what I mean? That we, we, the constant reminders that we need about the cultural connections, and so this whole story about the twin warriors and why you defeat the monsters and why you need to be warriors was so powerful to me and so instructive, you know, to take my own um, ideas and beliefs and set it aside mm. to read and to learn and to understand. And now it's like, yeah, I get monsters, right? You know, mm. I get, I get why the student, um, um, is seen it that way. The students who talked about it that way. So, mm. so, so let's help the readers under, uh, the listeners understand what are the systemic monsters that plague higher education, and what can we do to start dismantling them, and 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 stuff like that. Yeah, you know, I I, I like your thoughts too because I really I think the reason why I felt like it was important to name I write in the book to name the monsters because. Mm -hmm. Growing up on the reservation and also being alongside my some of my community, I don't want to say that this is happening across all people. I want to be careful about that, across all Native or Navajos. Mm -hmm. But there's a tendency to blame the conditions that we're, that we're living, blame ourselves. Right. Because we don't get to learn about the systemic monsters in our schooling or in higher education and not until maybe later on, like I didn't even learn about settler colonialism as one of the monsters. Right. Until I was graduated from my doctoral program and I was reading up on my own because mm -hmm. I didn't have an indigenous um, scholar in my higher ed program to teach me that language. Mm -hmm. So I remember growing up at Ganado feeling like, God, why are we always living a paycheck to paycheck? Why do we have to drive like such a far distance to get milk and get groceries? Why, you know, why is there just pervasiveness of um, even alcoholism in the neighboring uh, border town on the reservation? 
Mm -hmm. And I would feel like, what's wrong with us? Mm. And I think this is similar to many communities when we're living in the struggle. The struggle is real. We internalize it. And I use the language we we the monstrous, monstrous internalization. We internalize it. It's our fault. And that's and I'm wanting to talk. I'm writing this book to young people. It's like my love letter to my children to let them know, like, there are deep seated monsters, centuries old, that created the conditions in which we're, our families and our communities are living today. And that's why it's hard for our communities and our people in our communities to get a job mm -hmm. on Navajo land, like that simple. So I want them to have the language and the understanding of those monsters. So the definition then of systemic monsters are the interlocking structures of power rooted in white supremacy, settler colonialism, racism, erasure, heteropatriarchy, and capitalism that disrupt sovereignty and belonging. Mm -hmm. Those are some big yeah. words. And we know those words because we study it now as doctors. Mm -hmm. But my young, my high school student, my, my son, he's not learning about erasure or even racism in his school mm -hmm. or heteropatriarchy. And so it's this giving them the language for that is was really critical for me. And so I'm not going to talk about all the monsters, but maybe I'll talk about one. Mm -hmm. and one of the monsters, for example, is actually called the financial hardship monster. Right. And this was the senior year in high school, um, that first half. So what I was finding is students were the 10 students. Some of these students were living in high school with no running water electricity. Getting back to that earlier comment about technology. Mm -hmm. And so then they were sharing with me their senior year of like, they're like academically strong. All these students are academically strong. And then feeling the burden of really trying hard to stay on top of their academics because they knew that they could not afford college because their their families are living off of, you know, just trying to get paycheck to paycheck. Right. And so these students then, the financial hardship monster is, is illustrating the context of their living conditions. Right. And this was important because it, many people don't know that many homes on Navajo don't have running water and electricity in 2022. Right. right. And, now, and so I talk about COVID at the beginning of this book because COVID spread rampantly in our community. Mm -hmm. We were hit hard. It was all over national news. And in that time frame, we were we're feeling like, what's wrong with us? Why can't we be healthy? Why? We're not washing our hands. What's wrong? Mm -hmm. But then it's the same logic. It's because, well, we don't have many homes that have running water. Families right. are living in one-room houses that's far distance to get healthcare and groceries. This is, mm -hmm. this is where I'm from. Right. So it's COVID then, our president, our Navajo Nation president was saying, COVID is the monster. He was using that language. COVID is the monster. Our people need to fight against the monster. And, and I shared delicately in the book, like, no disrespect, president of the Navajo Nation. COVID is not the monster. The systemic structures, the systemic monsters that make the conditions for COVID to spread is the monster. Except right. the colonialism the history of our land and why. So then in the book, I talk about why it's, why the living conditions exist and it's really connected to the treaty rights, federal policies that make it difficult for even to start a business on Navajo land. And I talk about that. 
<laughs> of all the red tape just to start one business. That's right. why there was only at the time I was writing this book, only 13 grocery stores on Navajo land in the same land base of West Virginia. Right. That's, right. That gives you illustration. So in the book, then Financial Hardship Monster, I'm laying the context. I'm talking about settler colonialism, the control of land, and when that history happened with the federal government. And now why the infrastructure and the system of our people, it makes it hard for us to have thriving lives mm -hmm. because of all of the federal policy. So then when a student like Sarah is living in a tough conditions of, you know, I say she has no running water, electricity, but she's strong. Like, mm -hmm. I don't want to make this thing. Oh, they're struggling. No, they are. The, the students know how to survive in this. I mean, if we were going to have an apocalypse, we would they would know how to survive. Uh, they have other knowledge knowledge base of surviving in home life like that. Right. But but at the end of the day, though, when they see college as twenty thousand dollars a year for in state, that's a real financial hardship monster. Right. So I start illustrating that monster, providing the history of the context to to demonstrate settler colonialism is the root of that monster, and then it makes us aware of like wow, when we raise tuition, it impacts students like Sarah and what she's trying to do to better her life and her community. And so there's four different, there's four monsters in there, but each monster I, I do that. I go to the history, the centuries old monsters and how they form, how erasure was a formed in that, in educational context and how it plays out in the students' lives um, currently and um, to give them the language that they need. Right. So then they understand like now, now when I did this, it was helpful for me. Like now I understand why my family had to drive hours away to get groceries. Right. Because there was no place nearby in our home community because of the red tape and how it's difficult. So it was, design. yeah. So it was a healing process for me in learning that, but also recognizing like, gosh, we're not even teaching these in our school settings. Right. And, and then we internalize it's our fault. And I'm like saying, no, it's not the fault of the people. It's, mm -hmm. the, it's the fault of a broken system that continues to keep us as status quo. Well, that makes me think right now of these wars around critical race theory, for example. We can't, if you teach people to really examine the structural mm -hmm. problems, to really understand the systemic nature of this oppression, to really understand um, um, colonial um, oppression and all of these things. Oh, now that's dangerous. So we're not trying to get critical race theory because it makes somebody feel rid of critical mm -hmm. race theory because it makes somebody feel badly. We're getting rid of critical race theory and other um, theories that are going to examine this systemic oppression because it's going to uproot the whole system mm -hmm. once we have the language to talk about it once mm -hmm. we can to pin it back so this is so powerful um, as you're talking about these monsters and sharing this language and um this understanding because as long as you can convince me that how i'm living and where i'm living is my own fault mm. and i've convinced other folks, you know, with white supremacy, that the reason you're living like that is your fault. Mm -hmm. We never, we won't change anything. So that is so incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. um, just amazing. And you've mentioned only two of the students. You interviewed, I think, 10. Yeah. And I think you mentioned two of them, um, Sarah and Cecilia, and these powerful um, 
um, lessons that you learned or were able to take from them. And I'm wondering if you had um, some other powerful lessons that you might want to share, one or two from some of the other students or more that those two um, taught you. Yeah, each of them just, gosh, when I was in the depth of like listening to their stories over and over again, I just was just marked by so much, how much wisdom that they can, they give us. <laughs> and And it was really healing in my own life of things, challenges I was undergoing during the writing process and hearing them. So one of them, for example, one of the indigenous weapons is actually about prayer. Mm -hmm. And they all talked about prayer in different ways because they all have different, I think we would use the language of denomination um, mm -hmm. based upon a particular religion. They didn't, they didn't use that language, but they would say things like, um, I was raised traditional. So that mm -hmm. means that they have the Navajo teachings and prayer is really influential in there. And so Lauren is one of the students that comes to mind because her mother instilled in her traditional values of prayer. And so she would tell her, she would tell Lauren, like, wherever you are, remember where you come from mm -hmm. and remember prayer and prayer will give, give you strength. And so Lauren in her first year, one of the monsters that was really plaguing her was called I call it the deficit not enough monster mm -hmm. and so it's just this um, no I'm sorry it's called the failure monster fear of failure monster mm -hmm. and it was this idea of like the students were just really scared of failing and I put use failing in as mm -hmm. like quote, meaning because it it if they failed their math or chemistry then it impacted their GPA then mm -hmm. it impacted their financial aid then it impact their sense of continuing in school. Right. And it disrupted their whole sense of belonging too, because they were top high school students. They're coming into college and they're getting their first failing grades. So right. it disrupted belonging. And so Lauren in particular really was on her, it was, it was pressuring on her heart. She would have been the first oldest sibling in her family. She felt like she had a lot of responsibility to do well. But she, when she would go home, she would talk about, she was a cattle girl. So she um, was always around her horses. So she talked about going back home and being around her horse and just talking to her horse. And it, that also was a practice of like getting things out, unloading. And it talk, and to me, it, you know, we use the language of more than human relations a lot. And I feel like that gives value of also to like our, our relatives that are non-human. Mm -hmm. And how much they also, I think we don't talk about that enough in Hired. Maybe we tease about on Twitter or we talk about our dog who is soothing us. But um, in this book, in this journey, I was hearing more so about really the value of relationships that she had with her, her horses in particular. And she wasn't the only one. So this idea then of prayer was really powerful because they were all sharing how the, that way they didn't feel like they were alone. Mm -hmm. they, they they felt like they had um, something that they can go to when they were on co in college and so that really touched my heart and I and it really when I was writing about prayer and how comfort much comfort they received in that and so that gives us a lot of thinking about in student affairs about what does that mean for us when we're thinking about prayer and the different ways prayer is um maybe limited or we're fearful of it 
Mm -hmm. or you know the different ways that we maybe don't talk about it but I I felt like when I was with these students and writing and hearing them how critical it was for them to be able to access the connection to prayer so the weapon is then this idea of it's the idea of reverence of sacredness Mm -hmm. and that's a weapon um and 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 that have the how we have that regard they had that regard of that and they didn't get to a place like, oh, this is, I'm Christian. And so this is the way we want to be, or I'm like this. They didn't have any of those type of language. They were really like, I felt like inclusive. I don't know if that's an accurate term, but it feels close to it. This idea of like holding each other con- in their different value systems. Because mm-hmm. some are Christian, some are Mormon, some um, identified as another one called the Native American church. So they had different denominations, but they all talked about that. And uh, that really touched my heart. And that's something that I practice because, you know, I reinforce because of being close to their stories. So mm-hmm. that wisdom, it was it's real. Um, they taught me a lot. And so now when I do my talk, sometimes I'm talking, just the other day, I talked with high school students and I talked about the power of prayer mm-hmm. and about our practicing something that gives them strength. And when you go to college, how that is a useful weapon for you and how that and and it gives me an opportunity to talk about about that because the students brought it to me in this in this work well you know that's that's it's really an interesting time to talk about prayer where um um because our our conversations around what's happening on campuses with different groups let's say evangelical christians and how some would say that they are using um their um, perspective and being on what it means to be a prayerful person or, or, or whatever, and using it to harm others. And so that the student affairs response has been not, let's not talk about that or the um, education in general, you know, public education in general saying, we can't talk about those things rather than taking a real nuanced and um, um perspective that allows people to find the strength where they find it and yet as these students modeled for you you don't have to do it my way Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the way that this is the way I do it and here's how you do it and how do we find our strength and our joy and what do we battle against Mm -hmm. um, together and I think that we need a, a different and a more nuanced look and again as you said these students taught us so much because reading that um really helped me to see this differently, you know, mm-hmm. and so that was really um, powerful. Um, um, again, I, like you, I was blown away mm-hmm. by the wisdom, you know, that these students shared. So, so that was pretty impressive. Um, so and I like that idea, like, I, I know you go to the next question, but I just want to affirm your thinking. I think we do need to do a, a look at be a nuanced approach to how we think about prayer, because I think, I think that's something that is critical in our work. Right. So otherwise it gets to a place where we just don't, we just don't include it, you know, and right. what, how is that the, how is that also another aspect of closing up knowledge systems or like in my language and in indigenous weapons that gives strength to a particular group. So how do we think about prayer and how do we think about the nuanced approach of, 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 of including it that doesn't, that for, that allows abundancy. Um, I think we our field needs that 
And uh, I, I thank you for saying that. I just want to reaffirm I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's different. I think we have this all or nothing response. Yeah. And we're afraid to have conversations. We're afraid not to have conversations around it. And um, and what that word is, because some people are far more comfortable with the word meditation or yeah. or or some other aspect. And I don't, I don't care what you, words they use. I'm more concerned with what does it bring and what what are our students telling us they need from this? So. Mm -hmm. There is something there. Um, I want to ask, I want to shift this to the other side. So we've heard from yeah. these students, we've heard from you, we've talked about this. And I'm wondering um, what we need to do as student affairs educators, as higher education um, um, educators, as um, faculty, as staff, you know, what are some basic actions that campuses can do now and campuses can build to do later to better support um indigenous students and you know yeah. like if you pick one two three basic actions that we can do i know it's so easy for us to want to tie things up right and, yeah and as student affairs we want the nice easy steps and and i i remember when i was writing the book i'm looking at my book too because in the last chapter i was um i was struggling and providing whether to provide actually these like one, two, three, because I, I know that in our work, we, we want that. It's mm -hmm. I, think it's as a, I think as a society, we want that. We want to lose weight. Let's do these one, two, three things. We want to do this. I mean, it's um, it helps us. And I know there's advantages in having that, but at the same time, I was struggling with that because in our, in our storytelling, like Dennis storytelling, when I talked about the twin warriors, you know, I've heard it in various ways at different times by various storytellers. And after they tell us a story, they don't tell us, okay, here are two or three lessons from this story. Right. Right. There isn't that. There hasn't ever been, I don't know one time where I felt like there, I got that after that. And it's connected to this idea where Whatever, everybody comes to stories in their own time, in their own place, with their own need. Mm -hmm. I don't know who's listening to this, what you are trying to gain or what you need, you what you have planted in your heart or what you want to do, let's say for Native students on your campus. Because I don't know, I don't know what it is. Everyone's different and the context is different. But when you read this book, I hope that there's something that resonates with you that you can see uh, the next maybe pathway mm -hmm. from reading it. And it's going to be different for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so I, I tried as much as I can to adhere to that in my writing by honoring Danette ways by saying, but not making it like a one, two, three step. Sure. But really acknowledging that everyone will come. I did though. And also too, this book was written for, I start the book by saying, dear Shalchene. Shalchene means like my children. Mm -hmm. So my audience in this is I'm writing to actually my children. And when I think of my, not only my children, I think of the many native college students that I've have been privileged and honored to be alongside. And, and so I'm thinking of them. And so it was hard for, so then it wasn't, then it makes sense for me to write to, to non, um, to non-natives about, about what to get from this. But I did offer a little letter 
a, a little piece at the end. So I was going to bring that up. So in the, in, in the conclusion around on page 177, I write a brief note to teachers, professors, administrators, and policymakers. And I, I'm going to read a little bit about it. Sure. This book was written for Native peoples, as it should be. But I know that some of you who are reading are non-Native, possibly seeking ways to support Natives, possibly embarking on learning something new, possibly being required to read this, and are possibly being given this book as a gift. For whatever reason that you came to enter this story rug, I thought it would be good to leave you with a note. Truth is that the decisions that you make affect my children and Native communities. Truth is, that is how life works and operates in a cyclical nature. And sometimes I wonder if you realize that. That is why this note is for you. I return to the question that I posed at the beginning of this book and again in this chapter. Repetition is necessary. The question is, who sets the terms of belonging? Hmm. There is a politics of belonging. And now you may also be more aware that there are monsters. Then with this knowing, what can you do to reckon through the unbelonging process and respectfully support relational sovereign belonging? This is something that you will have to work through. I only have a few thoughts and a few more questions, but I hope that you will further engage in these questions and actively build meaningful relationships with others and the land to proceed with love and care. So what I'm trying to do in this section is to forward these questions of, and the whole book is really about who sets the terms of belonging. Mm -hmm. Talk a lot about belonging in higher education. We theorize it, we research it. I'm taking a step back and asking, okay, but who is setting the terms of belonging? Mm -hmm. And what does that mean for you? And who is excluded in those, in those ideas of belonging? And so this brief note then is asking us and also um, helping folks to think about that a little bit, a little bit more, particularly around Native students. And I, 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 I often say, even in the work of diversity, inclusion, equity, and justice that is occurring right now in this climate that we're having, Native students are still left out of those conversations. There's many, many times where I've been in, I've been in community committee works. I've been asked to speak about this across across the country. And Native students are not included in these conversations. And so, again, it goes back to who sets the terms. Mm -hmm. you know, and I learned that question from my mentor and good friend and colleague, Dr. Brian Brayboy. He's constantly reminding me who sets the terms of the debate. Mm -hmm. And so in our work, then I'm thinking who sets the terms of belonging in the work that we're doing. And so I encourage you to read that book. I asked some questions. And I also hope that you feel okay that I'm not going to give you a one, two, three step process. Um, it's really an intuitive um, reflexivity activity. And I don't even know if activity is the right word, engagement and thinking about where you're at and where you're situated, what's the what's what's happening. And not only in student affairs, but I hope you also pick it up in your own life. Because when we exit the campus, we are still living beings operating in, the, in this land and this place with other people. And so this is not a, this is not a time to, to hang your jacket, you're done and now you live your life. It's a way in which you, you're, you, you encompass that, that everything into your whole 
well-being and your whole essence. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm, I'm, I'm asking folks to do that. And I'm doing it for my own self as well. And, and, it's, and, and it's a discipline. We were talking about that earlier, but it's a discipline, meaning I, I, it's not natural for me. And so I have to discipline myself to practice, to um, be alongside others mm-hmm. and, and learn about other people and the ways in which I'm conceptually belonging for myself and belonging, what does that look like for communities? And so, so I'm on the exploration as well. And mm-hmm. I, and it's, it's not easy, but I encourage folks to, to, to engage in that. And so one, so one example I'm doing is I, as I've done, even in this book, I've been really empowered and inspired by black thinkers. And, and I feel like there's such a relationships and there's, um, I don't know if solidarity is an accurate term. I'm still wanting to see, but it's like being alongside black scholars has really helped me in my thinking. And so um, I give a lot of credit to my colleagues, Kian McGuire, Meseret Hailu, where we have read and dialogue intimately with each other, re- shared letters with each other about, about they're reading into indigenous intellectual thought. I'm reading black indigenous, I mean, black thought, intellectual thought and we're engaging in conversations together and writing together and being alongside each other. And I, and I feel like that's helped me to grow as a person. So that's just my own example of how I'm engaging on who sets the terms of debate of belonging. Because mm-hmm. I want my belonging as a Native woman alongside my, my Black community, alongside me. My future is, is with black, black communities and other communities. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so that's where I've kind of, I, I feel like going all over the place right now, but I'm just thinking about how everybody is different and where they come into it and what they will move, go moving forward. No, I don't think you were all over the place. I think you were just spot on. And I think it's, you know, this is what um, happens with me in these conversations, because now that's a whole other 30 minute conversation that we can have that <laughs> yeah. is just um, 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 so powerful. And I really love the way that you pushed back on that question because you know, this is what we do in student affairs. And partly because someone says, I don't know enough. Tell me what to do. And I love you're pushing back and saying, I can't tell you what to do. I can give you the story. I can mm-hmm. give you some information. I can share with you my experience, or in this case, the, also the experience of these 10 students, mm-hmm. which, you know, represents this bigger picture. Now, what does that do to you? And for the people who do see, and I've talked about this a long time, people who see this um, equity, justice, diversity, and inclusion work as a suit that I put on when I come to work, and then I'm I'm leaving work now, and I get to hang the jacket up, as you said, then then you don't get the message, and you need to spend some more time in reflection. I also loved your whole thing about how we are, we need to be in conversation with each other. You know, what do we learn from um, other communities and what do we have to share? You know, you know, I, I love that you're talking about um, what you're learning from black intellectual thought. Me, I even narrow that down. Um, the, the work of, of black women who have been doing this kind of work yes. and have been pushing it out there and how it keeps getting hidden and we bring in these other speakers and I think all of these voices need to be talked about and so 
I really, really appreciate this conversation. And we're going to have to do this more. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to have to like uh, sort of bring this to a close um, for this experience, but we'll keep finding more. Um, I want to um, take a moment here to, to thank our sponsors, um, Stylus Publications and Leadership. Stylus is proud to be a sponsor of Student Affairs Now um, and this whole podcast. Um, please browse through their Student Affairs Diversity and Professional Development titles at styluspub.com and use the promo code SANOW and you can get 30% off all books plus free shipping. Um, and... Um, you can also find Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Stylus Pub. Leadership partners with colleges and universities to create transformational leadership experiences, both virtual and in-person, for students and professionals, with a focus on creating a more just, caring, and thriving world. Leadership offers engaging learning experiences on Courageous Dialogue, Integrity, Equity, Resilience, and Community Building. And to find out more, please visit leadershape.org um, forward slash virtual programs or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. I want to send a huge and heartfelt shout out to Natalie Ambrosi, the production assistant for the podcast. She does all of the good behind the scenes work that makes us look and sound good. Great, actually. <laughs> to our listeners, I'm so grateful for all your time today. This conversation has given me so much to think about and has really been soothing to my soul. I hope it's done the same for you. As you listen today, if you find this content to be useful um, for your student affairs practice and scholarship, we'd love it if you'd share this episode with your social media networks. Again, I'm Rochelle Pope, and thanks again, or ahihe. Uh, he, hey, hey. Um, to Dr. Amanda Tashini and to everyone who's listening and watching. Please, folks, take time for each other. <laughs>